the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Matthew. If it's a mystery to people whether or not you're saved, then the question might be, are you producing fruit in keeping with your repentance? It should not be a mystery that you know Jesus, that you love Jesus, that you're following after Jesus. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. There ought to be evidence for our faith that is visible and that is noticeable and that is fruitful uh, in our lives. But the other thing he points out in verse 9, when he says here about, you know, don't think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, is that it's not about your religious heritage, it's about your heart. In today's message, we come to the biblical introduction to John the Baptist. This man left no doubt that he was different. He did things in a very unorthodox way, but not just for the sake of being unusual. He had a mission the great privilege of preparing the way for the Messiah. As Pastor Gary will challenge us in today's message, if we lived out our own mission with just a fraction of the fervor and dedication of John the Baptist, we could make a profound impact in our world for Jesus. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Matthew, chapter 3, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. So we're here in chapter 3, and we are introduced to John the Baptist, not John the Methodist, not John the Lutheran, but John the Baptist. And he is so nicknamed because his ministry involves uh, baptism. So we'll talk about that a little bit as we make our way through this third chapter. But this is the way it begins. It says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And this is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Again, Matthew is a Jew. He is reaching predominantly a Jewish audience, so he is the one who refers to the Old Testament scriptures more than any other New Testament writer. More than a hundred times he references some Old Testament passage, and this is one of them. He quotes out of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, as it relates to John the Baptist, uh, who would be the forerunner of Jesus Christ to announce the Messiah's arrival. Now, we know somewhat about John the Baptist, and I just kind of gave a few bullet points for us to get a better understanding of who this guy is. He is, as I just mentioned, the forerunner of Jesus to prepare his way. His birth was foretold to his father by the angel Gabriel in Luke chapter 1. Luke gives us a lot more information about 
the uh, conception of John the Baptist and the birth of John the Baptist and his early years of ministry more than Matthew does. So we compare Scripture with Scripture to get the full volume of it all. Uh, We also learn from Luke's Gospel that uh, John the Baptist was of the tribe of Levi because it tells us in Luke 1.5 that both his parents were descendants of Aaron. And if you've been with us in the weekend studies, you will know from a few weeks ago we talked about the order of the priesthood that God ordained and that Moses was to implement, and the first high priest was to be Moses' brother Aaron. Well, John the Baptist's parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, were both descendants of Aaron, and so that makes them, and that makes John the Baptist of the tribe of Levi. He is a Levite, and in particular, his father was a priest. In fact, he was performing his priestly duty in the temple of the Lord when the angel Gabriel appeared to him and told him that he was going to, in, in, his wife was going to, in, in their old age, uh, give birth to a son, and that he was to be named John, Johanan. And uh, at first, his father disputed this, thought it was incredulous, and for that, he became mute. The angel made him mute until uh, John the Baptist was circumcised and named on the eighth day. And when he was to be named, Uh, His mother, Elizabeth, said he is to be named John, and then they turned to his father, Zechariah, and said, is this to be true? And he had to ask for a tablet where he wrote out, his name shall be called John, and then at that moment his tongue was loosed, and so he could speak again. It was God's kind of temporary way of saying, you don't believe me, so you shall not speak again until he is named appropriately. And uh, so this much we know about uh, John the Baptist, and that he's also related to Jesus, Luke one thirty six says that their mothers, Elizabeth and Mary, were, and IV says relatives, King James says the word cousins, but sometimes even in the King James it's a loosely translated word for relative. We're not absolutely sure how they are related. If they are cousins, that would make John and Jesus second cousins or first cousins once removed. I don't know how all that works, but anyway, they would be related in some way. And then we also know this about John the Baptist, that he is considered the last of the Old Testament prophets in Luke 16. And in verse 16, it says this, The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. And since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. So the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, not until Malachi, but until John. So John is considered the last of the Old Testament prophets, meaning Old Covenant prophets, even though we read about John in the New Testament, his ministry occurs before the cross. So all prophetic ministry before the cross is considered Old Covenant prophecy, and John then would be the last of the Old Testament prophets. Jesus said in Matthew 11, 11, uh, he said, uh, no one born of a woman is greater than John the Baptist. So no prophet was greater than John the Baptist. Now, Jesus adds something there in Matthew 11, 11, when he says that no one born of a woman is greater than John the Baptist, but he adds, but he who is least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. And there's been a lot of different interpretations of that verse, and the more common interpretation is that it is a reference to the New Testament church, that uh, he who is least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. In other words, then, believers, New Testament believers will be, in a sense, greater than John the Baptist because we hold uh, as heirs of the promise and uh, we are part of the new covenant of grace uh, versus John's ministry, which was still under the old covenant. Now, that is the more common interpretation of that passage, 
although I will disagree with that common interpretation. I think Jesus was not speaking of the church. I think he was speaking of himself. When he says, no one born of woman is greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. Now think about that. I don't for a moment think that positionally I'm going to be closer to the throne in heaven than is John the Baptist, okay? John the Baptist is going to be way forward. I'm going to be in the back somewhere looking at the back of his head. So really, when you think about that, is that the the best interpretation? He who is least in the kingdom is going to be greater than John the Baptist. I think Jesus is referring to himself. It's all part of the the uh, dichotomy of the kingdom, all right? It's, it's the oxymoron of the universal laws of the kingdom. Uh, if you want to be uh, uh, first, you'll be last. He who is last shall be first. That's one. Uh, if you want to be great, you have to be least. He who is least will be great. Who is the least in the kingdom? It's not you and me. It's Jesus. He became least, emptied himself, and thus he is great, and he is greater than all. And I think in, in uh, positionally, especially speaking in reference to himself, where everybody was focused on John the Baptist, and Jesus was saying, yes, great prophet, greater than any other prophet, but he who was least in the kingdom was greater than John the Baptist. I think he was wanting people to recognize his own leastness, which would make him, of course, greater positionally and superior than anyone and anything else. But anyway, be that as it may, however you might want to interpret Matthew eleven eleven, the first part of it is clear. No prophet was greater than John the Baptist. And interestingly, even though Jesus said that, it also tells us in John ten forty one that he performed no miracles. It was not a miraculous ministry that he had, so he is not known for performing any miracles. His main ministry was having the privilege of pointing to Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So there's no greater calling than that to be the one who is the herald for the arrival of Messiah. Don't you know uh, that every Old Testament prophet wishes that he had had that privilege? Elijah, uh, Malachi, uh, Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all of them would have loved to have been where John the Baptist was Forget about performing miracles to be able to declare this is the one who's going to die for the sins of the world. What a high calling and a high privilege. And John the Baptist had that. And despite the fact that he didn't perform any miracles per se. And his ministry began around 28 or 29 AD. We know this again because Luke 3, 1. Luke is very detailed. He tells us that uh, Tiberius was emperor. He tells us that in Luke chapter 3, he tells us Tiberius was emperor. He says Pilate was governor. He says Herod and Philip and uh, Licinius were tetrarchs. And he says Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. That was the time when there were two high priests only because the Roman government appointed their own liaison so they could have a puppet in the Sanhedrin. But Luke, very detailed there in Luke chapter 3, verse 1, he tells us then specifically it was the 15th uh, rather, the, the, yeah, the 15th year of Emperor Tiberius, we know that he came to the throne in 14 AD, so thereabouts, it was tw- depending on what time of the year you count, 28 or 29 AD, when John the Baptist began his ministry. So this is that John the Baptist, very privileged individual. His birth is predetermined and foretold, and, uh, and here he is with this incredible calling upon his life to be the one who is this herald a voice of one calling in the desert. And I don't think that that is uh, just simply geographical, although much of his ministry was in the, je- in the desert region of, uh, of Judah, of Judea. But I think it's a statement of the spiritual climate of the day as well. It was dry. It was arid. Remember that God had been silent for 400 years. From the last prophet of Malachi of our Old Testament until John the Baptist, 
uh, the Lord had not spoken through any individual prophet until now. So for 400 years, there had been this uh, sense of a spiritual deafness among the people and dryness among the people. And here comes John the Baptist. Now, it describes him back here in Matthew 3, verse 4. It says that his clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now, when you read the gospel accounts in Luke, it tells us that when the angel Gabriel announced to John's father about the conception of John the Baptist, one of the things that Gabriel said to his father was that he shall never uh, eat of uh, or drink of the vine, uh, anything fermented or anything related to the, the grape vineyard, which would imply that John the Baptist was a Nazarite. Now, a Nazarite was one who took a vow that uh, they would never touch anything, not only fermented alcohol, but anything of the grape vineyard. Uh, they would never go around dead bodies, and they would never cut their hair. Remember, who was the most famous who took the Nazarite vow? Samson. So, uh, and, and here comes John the Baptist, and I want you to envision him as, uh, just as the passage describes to us, uh, here he is wearing the, the, you know, this outfit of camel's hair uh, with a leather belt. Uh, no doubt he's got long uh, woolly hair and uh, a bushy beard, and he's got uh, locust wings and wild honey hanging from his beard. Uh, you've seen him if you've ever watched Duck Dynasty, all right? Uh, that's a good idea of who John the Baptist is. One of those guys. I'm sure one day he's, he's, he's going to be on the show. But anyhow, here he has his food, locusts and wild honey. You say, why locusts and wild honey? Well, I know why the wild honey, because if you're eating locusts, you've got to have something to dip it in, all right? Now, actually, in the Old Testament, locusts were acceptable food to eat. There were certain creatures that were forbidden and considered unclean, but locusts were considered clean animals, clean insects, I should say, not animals, clean insects. And so here he is chomping down on locusts and wild honey. He's got this woolly beard and hair, and he's wearing a camel outfit and a leather belt. I mean, this is just a real rugged character, okay? Very rugged character. Uh, anyway, he should have his own reality show. I'm, I'm seeing it right now in my mind's eye. And, and it says that people went out to him from Jerusalem all, and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now, interestingly, there are three baptisms, three kind of baptisms in the New Testament. This is one of them right here. Uh, the baptism of water by John uh, to show repentance, looking forward to the Messiah. That's this kind of baptism. Remember, Jesus has not yet died on the cross, so this baptism is not for their belief in Jesus. This baptism is looking forward to the Messiah. Now, they don't know that he's right here on the horizon yet. But as they're being baptized, it is their way of, con they confess their sins, they're being water baptized, they're acknowledging their need for the Messiah. That's John's baptism. His baptism was a baptism of repentance. But then, of course, we also see the more common one that we practice today, which is an another baptism of water, but it is in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this is for followers of Christ to show our identification with the Messiah. His death, his burial, and his resurrection. So when we practice immersion here at Cornerstone, we baptize people in water, 
It is symbolic of going under the water as to identify with the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, coming up out of the water to identify with his resurrection. And thus, water baptism is a sign, an external sign of an internal work that we have confessed with our mouths and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord and we've trusted him as our Savior. And so believers are encouraged to be baptized. Now, baptism is not a requirement for salvation. You don't have to be baptized in order to be saved, although some sects teach that today, but that's not a biblical truth. There is no other thing to be added to the finished work of the cross except your faith. It is uh, by faith are we saved uh, and not of works, By grace are you saved, not of works. Uh, It is a gift of God. This is faith exercised in believing in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins. And thus it is nothing to be added to that basic gift. Even, Even believing faith is a gift from God. We are saved by grace, not of works, as any man should boast. The saving faith that is given to us to believe in Christ is a gift from God himself. And so when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, uh, that is all that is necessary. It is not... Believe in Jesus and be baptized. It is not believe in Jesus and speak in tongues. It is not believe in Jesus and circumcision. There's no other addition. It is faith in Christ alone. And so um, that is the baptism that we practice today. We don't practice John's baptism anymore because Messiah has come. So now the baptism is a baptism of identification with the finished work of Jesus Christ. And then the third baptism spoken of in the New Testament is the baptism of the Spirit. And it is bestowed upon us by Jesus, uh, as we will see in a moment, because John the Baptist will tell us this further down in Matthew chapter 3. And in Acts chapter 1, uh, Jesus himself referred to it as a baptism in Acts 1-5 when he said this, For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then in uh, verse 8 of Acts 1, he says, Jesus again speaking before he ascends into heaven, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So there is a baptism of the Spirit that Jesus bestows upon us for empowerment and for service. But the baptism that we're reading of here in Matthew's gospel is the baptism that was pre-Messiah. This is pre-crucifixion. This is a baptism confessing their sins and expressing their need for the Messiah. And here John is baptizing uh, in the Jordan River. And in verse 7 it says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, and you'll notice here how John the Baptist uh, was not a man to mince words. And look at what he says to them. You brood of vipers. You bunch of snakes, is what he calls them. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance... But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, he's talking about Jesus, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He, this is Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So here John the Baptist is very strong, very confrontational, uh, and he addresses here uh, Pharisees and Sadducees, verse 7 tells us. Now the Pharisees were the religious zealots of the day. They were very legalistic. 
They were very much about the letter of the law, but uh, they were so much about the letter of the law that they missed the greater picture of grace, and Jesus would rebuke the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. All of Matthew 23 is a rebuke of the Pharisees. They were so religious and pious and hypocritical, and uh, they would heap heavy loads upon men's shoulders because they would use the law as a burden to uh, point out to people how they were incapable of getting to God and, and all of this heavy legalism. These are the religious zealots who had lost sight of the truth because of their own myopic view of what they consider to be right and wrong. And they were, you know, staunch about it. This is right and this is wrong. If you don't follow and fall into line in our camp, uh, then, then you're not right with God. And, and yet there was so much hypocrisy, and Jesus will point it out in Matthew 23. The Sadducees were more of a political faction. Uh, th- these, were, these were Jews, the Pharisees and Sadducees, but they were different sects. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They didn't embrace all of the, of the truth of, of Scripture. Uh, they were more aligned with the Roman government, so they were more um, sympathetic with Rome. And so they tried to keep one foot in the political realm, one foot in, in the synagogue, if you will. And so uh, they were hip- hypocritical in many ways as well, uh, much more worldly. And often the Pharisees and Sadducees uh, d- did not get along or see eye to eye. And uh, John rebukes them, calls them snakes. And he tells us in verse 8 that we need to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, repentance is the act of stopping the direction you're going and going in the opposite direction. A repentant heart means that you turn 180 degrees, you were going one way in your life, but you find the Lord and then you go the other direction. And John points out that true repentance will be accompanied by good fruit. Now, this is where it gets difficult because some people want to be fruit inspectors and you want to look at somebody else and determine whether or not they've really repented. And uh, that's not our uh, calling. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. But having said that, the point he's trying to make here is is that a, a true repentance can be recognized. True repentance can be recognized. If it's a mystery to people whether or not you're saved then the question might be, are you producing fruit in keeping with your repentance? It should not be a mystery that you know Jesus, that you love Jesus, that you're following after Jesus. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. There ought to be evidence for our faith that is visible and that is noticeable and that is fruitful uh, in our lives. But the other thing he points out in verse 9, when he says here about, you know, don't think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, is that it's not about your religious heritage, it's about your heart. And the Jews were well known, at least the Pharisees and Sadducees were well known for falling back on their religious heritage. And they're like, we have Abraham as our father, we're good to go. And there are a lot of people even today lining the pews of many churches who think that they're on their way to heaven because they fall back on their religious heritage. It has nothing to do with John Wesley. It has nothing to do with Martin Luther. It has nothing to do with John the Baptist. It has nothing to do with any sect or any denomination. It has to do with your heart. You can't fall back on as good as, as wonderful as that heritage might have been for you. And, and I don't want you to deny that at all. If you've grown up in the church and you have a church heritage and you grew up, whether it's a mainline denomination or no denomination or what it is, but you came to know Christ, the, the actual identity is in Jesus. It's not in your heritage. And some people have a hard time with this. Uh, I know that, you know, at first when the idea for me, having grown up in the Methodist church and having Methodist pastors on both sides of my family, my dad's uh, brother was a Methodist pastor for many years. My dad's grandfather, my great-grandfather, was a circuit rider preacher on horseback for the Methodist church through the hills of West Virginia. 
And on my mom's side, my, my mom's father was a district superintendent of the Methodist Church. Let me tell you something. At first, the idea of leaving Methodism made some people in my family think I was leaving Jesus because it's so connected. But after a while, they realized uh, they all needed to leave. And so, um, um, yeah, they're all gone now. But, uh, but, but the point is this. It's not, it's not about our religious heritage. It's about, do you know Jesus? Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Pastor Gary has been walking us through the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. This unique perspective on Jesus' life gives you a glimpse into the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and the true King above all kings. Jesus' greatest act while on earth was to give His life to pay for the sins of every person, and that includes you. If you're ready to step away from your mistakes and failures and embrace a new life, Jesus is ready for you. His grace is enough. You can come to Him no matter what your past looks like. Would you like someone to pray with you? Or do you have some more questions? We'd love to talk to you. Please connect with us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. We'd love to meet you too. You're invited to join us this weekend at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg. We're meeting in person as well as online. And you can find all the information you need on our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. There, you can also hear additional messages from the series in Matthew or others that Pastor Gary has shared. Again, that website is cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know